Behold, my son is coming. He is my gift to you. He is your hope. He is your joy. He is your peace. He is coming so that you might have life. Behold, he is Christ the Lord. Well, good morning to you all. So, uh, you know, it's never fun when you look up and you see on Sunday it's going to be rainy outside because some of you have to park a long ways away, including me. And uh, it's like, wow, that's, uh, that's probably not an incentive for some of you, but I'm glad you guys came and you didn't let the rain keep you away. And uh, this is a special season. And uh, we just finished last week a series where we began in, in September talking about the, the second coming of Jesus, where he is going to come again, and uh, we don't know when, but he's coming this time to collect his church and all those who are uh, following after him. And, and multiple times last week as we were talking about that, that when Peter was describing what that moment's going to be like, he's drawing from a personal experience of having seen Jesus in his full glory and power on what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a soon before they were to go to Jerusalem where Jesus would ultimately uh, die on the cross and raise again on the third day. So just a few weeks ahead of that, they had this opportunity where they got to see Jesus for who he was. And, and Peter says, when we behold that moment, when he comes again, we actually see him in his full glory and honor and power. You are going to feel like you are unworthy of seeing such a thing. It's going to blow your mind away to see him in that, that state. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's the same aspect. Uh, when we look at what happened on the night that uh, Jesus was actually born as a child, that the angels had their moment. Because keep in mind for the angels, for them, they had only known the glory and the power of Jesus and beholding him for all who he is. They had, since they were created, that's all they ever got to see was Jesus in that form. And then for all of their existence, for the thousands of years of their existence as created beings and, and being around the glory of Jesus, all of a sudden, they now see him as a human infant. And that was something that they had a hard time being able to put in words for us to appreciate what has just happened. But this idea of behold is key because the angels even said, you gotta behold this. You, you've gotta, you gotta look at this. And so when we hear that term behold, it actually is more than just taking a passing look. It's meant to be a term of, no, gaze upon it, look at it, study it, pause, make sure you don't miss this, right? And so in the King James, you're going to see that term listed 1,298 times in Scripture. In the ESV, which many of you use that translation of the Bible, you'll see the term behold 1,069 times. In the NIV, which is what I teach out of on, on uh, Sunday mornings, it is listed one time in all of Scripture, and it's in the book of Numbers. So what gives? Why all of the adjustment and the shift of, of this term? 
Well, the reality is the Greek term for the word behold, the, 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 the very specific term for it, is only 22 times in the entire Greek text. So why is it then that the term behold is in the King James and the ESV, which are very solid, reliable translations? Why is it in there so many times? Well, it'd be kind of like the idea that if you and I were writing a message to each other and we wanted to make sure that within a particular paragraph or statement that something is not missed, what would you do? You would bold it. You would embold it. You know, make it stand out. Or because we have computers today and we can do a lot of things with written text, you might italicize it, turn it into a different color. Honestly, when I do my notes, I do that so that I make sure I, I don't miss certain points. So we change the colors. We do the things to make it stand out. The translators are doing the same thing when they're using behold multiple times. You can tell within the text that this is a moment not to be missed, that you are to, uh, to lean into it, let it be absorbed more fully. I liken it to in when I go to Longwood Gardens. I, have you guys been to Longwood Gardens? It's an amazing place. You know, I, I grew up where there wasn't very much green. Uh, so when you go into Longwood Gardens, it's like green on steroids. It's like a lot of flowers and then a lot of colors. Well, when you go into the orchid room, uh, and you all of a sudden behold all of the orchids that are there. Now, you've got a choice. You can just kind of pass by that wall of orchids and say, wow, a lot of colors. And might see even some different shapes. But you would miss what makes the orchids amazing. You need to actually stand before every variety of orchid to appreciate its uniqueness. You have to gaze upon it. You have to behold it. And when you stare at an orchid, and again, I don't think orchids are very pretty until you get to the flower portion of it. They're kind of a, a stick-looking green, but then when you look at the actual flower and you see the details and the uniqueness of each orchid, it gives you an appreciation for its beauty. It just happens. Well, it's the same way that when we're told to behold something in Scripture— it says, don't just look upon it where you can just see all the colors and say, ah, a lot of colors. No, look at it. Pause. Stare at it. Absorb what you're seeing because don't want to miss the details that are there. And in the case of the birth of the Christ child, we're told, don't miss the details don't miss the importance of this moment. For the angels, again, they say this because we want you to lean in and look and see, this is incredible, what has just happened before you. Again, behold's not just a Christmas term. It's used throughout Scripture. And recently, we're noticing a pattern as the Holy Spirit moves the hearts of songwriters that the term behold is being used a lot in the past year, in the last 12 months. It's also been used by LAFC quite a bit. Back in the, in the late winter this past year, crossover went to winter blast, and behold, was their theme. And what they, what they heard from that is that whatever you behold, whatever you gaze upon, will shape you. It will shape you. And it's true. Whatever we let our eyes be fixed upon shapes you. 
That's why in Hebrews 12 it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because if your eyes are fixed on him, you're beholding him, it will shape your faith. So too, the crossover looked at it says, if you keep your eyes upon Jesus, it will captivate your heart. And it will guide your steps. The women just recently had uh, a, a retreat here this fall. Uh, many of you were on that retreat. And the theme again was, behold. And what they took from was Psalm 46.10. Very familiar psalm. It says, be still and know that the Lord is God. Be still and know that he is God. Why is it that stillness tells you more? It's because the typical tendency of all of us is when God is doing something great around you is we tend to walk by like I do, like some people do with those wall of orchids. They just walk by and say, oh, look at all the flowers and keep walking. When we do that with God, God's speaking to you, God's doing things around you, but you don't stop, you don't gaze, you don't behold, and you miss that what he's actually doing around you that can bless you so much. Psalm 46.10 says, in that stillness, we learn more about who God is. We appreciate his definition and, and his, all that he's done, and, we, and we, we begin to magnify him and glorify him when you pause long enough to realize how incredible he is. So bring this into Luke 2, verse 10, when the term behold is used, and it says, and the angel said to the shepherds that were right there, they were blown away by what they were beholding by seeing this angel right there. And he says uh, to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So again, behold, don't miss this. What I'm giving to you tonight is going to be good news for you, and it'll be for everyone. Verse 14 in Luke 2 says that, again, the angels are beholding this amazing moment as well, and they are brought to a chorus in saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. The angels knew something special had happened because the very creator that they had worshipped and known for all those centuries is now a baby. This should bring wonder to us. And this is good news to us. This should be peace to us. But it requires a pause. It requires a beholding. Not just flying by the text. So we're going to do that this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles right now to Philippians chapter 2. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. As usual, we do use the Bible app called YouVersion. Uh, you can utilize that as well. Go into the events tab. You'll find LEFC there. And just tap on that and you'll get all the scripture for today. But we're going to be in Philippians 2 today, not Luke 2. And then we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. So, again, Philippians chapter 2. Now what I'm going to ask of you is to put a particular uh, mindset on right now. Uh, and that is, imagine you're back in college uh, and it's the last class before you have a final. And you know, and the teacher says, okay, 
I'm going to give you a lot of information today that is going to be on your final. So if you hear that from your professor, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, open the notebook. I'm not going to glaze over. And you're going to try to listen for everything possible so that you can be well prepared for the final. So this is that kind of message, okay? It's this, that kind of sermon. We're, we're going to need to put a little bit of a thinking cap on. I'm not going to spoon feed you today. I need you to hear this, to contemplate it, and behold it. All right? So what we're going into today is we need to, in order to appreciate the birth of the Son of God. So he became Emmanuel, God with us. To appreciate that, we need to behold more deeply what actually happened. Where he became God incarnate, or God who became human. So here we go. We're going to start in Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'm going to stop there. Now, next week, we're going to go into that text more deeply. But I want to take the roots of what's being taught here today to lay the foundation for this Christmas season here at LEFC. That we're going to behold the uniqueness that Emmanuel, God, is with us. And so, within that, to be able to teach... The Apostle Paul, who wrote this text in Philippians 2, is writing to his peers, his countrymen, as one who has studied his entire life about the coming of the Messiah, having missed who the Messiah was, and was likely part of the crucifixion of the Messiah himself, because he himself was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were part of deciding we need to kill this man named Jesus that claims to be the Messiah. Yet, rooted in all they have been taught was to prepare, to wait. He is coming, and he came, and they missed it. So now Paul, who now knows that they missed it, is now teaching that they need to understand that the Messiah coming was God himself. Was God himself. So look at verse 6. So he's telling us in verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The church should have the same mind as Christ Jesus. What was his mind? Well, first of all, he was God. So who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage? So first of all, the first thing we need to learn from this text is that Jesus was and has always been fully God. Now, that may not seem profound to you, but if you change the statement, it will lead to a complete heresy of understanding who Christ is. Some are teaching now that when Jesus left heaven, he gave up being God. That is not accurate. Paul says very clearly, he being in very nature, present, 
ongoing, being in very nature God, did not consider that right as being God to use to his own advantage. Now let's consider for a moment. When Jesus was walking on this earth during his ministry years, which was about three years, did he not show his divinity? Yes. He was able to control the waters of a big sea, right? He was also able to rebuke a tree, and it died right after that rebuke. So he shows control just by the very words of his mouth. He also spoke words that were in the minds of people before they were even said. And they were like, come, and so like the woman at the well was like, come and tell, so hear this man that said everything I ever did. Now we don't get that whole part in the, in the text, but clearly she was like, he knew before I said. So there was clearly a divinity. He knew a lot. He knew Things before they happened, he was able to control nature. He showed he was the creator God. But as we see here, in your various translations, you're going to see in the NIV it uses the word nature. So who being in very nature God? In ESV or King James or NASB, you're going to see the word form. You're also going to see the same word show up again in verse 7. By taking on the very nature of a servant or again, depending on your translation, form. Then in verse 8, you're going to see again, this term, appearance, is shown. Just so you know, in those first two uses of the word nature or form, it's the Greek word morphe, which can also be translated appearance. Yes, can be translated appearance, form, essence. It can also be nature. And, and then what you see in verse 8 is a completely different term, and it's only referring to something external that you can observe with your eyes, whereas the morphe term is something more whole, complete, inner and outer. So what you're seeing here in verse 6 is that, that Paul says, no, he was in nature, in essence, in form, in all that it means, inwardly and outwardly, he was God. So then we can also see at the end of verse 6, then because he has all that power to speak, to know, to take control over nature, because he had all those things, did he use them for selfish, pleasurable purposes? No. They were always done in glory to his father. He would give glory to his father regularly. And whenever he would do those things, it was to teach and to benefit those he was coming to save. So Jesus did not use his divinity for personal advantage or gain. He didn't go on a tour of wowing the crowds just to wow them. You know, he could have used those powers to go on quite a tour and get the entire nation of Israel to follow after him. But they would have been only sensational seekers. And then what happens when that generation dies? The sensations are gone. Was there a belief in their heart? Was there transformation? But again, verse 5, what did it say? When you gather as believers, have the same mindset as Christ, who was God, but didn't use his divinity 
for selfish pleasure. There's something to learn in that. Now, there was an incredible movie made that was so divine and spirit-oriented called Bruce Almighty. <laughs> now, some, many of you are laughing, tells me you've seen the movie. For the rest of you, you're like, wow, it must be really serious. No, it's not at all. It's not at all. In fact, I'm not even sure I should technically say it's a great movie. But let's, let me give you the point of the movie. The point of the movie is this. God chooses a man who is very self-absorbed. He chooses this man, and his name's Bruce, and he gives Bruce all of his divine powers. And Bruce is going to have those divine powers for a, a certain segment of time. And so he gives him some instructions, and then God disappears, and Bruce is given all these powers. And what did Bruce do? He used all of his divinity during that season of time for selfish gain and selfish advantage. And what happened to society around him by him being divine and using those powers to his own advantage? It created chaos. Absolute chaos. You see, God, with all that power, doesn't operate that way. His character is higher than that. His divinity requires more than that. And that's why we're told here in, in verse 5, it's like, listen, even the divine does not use their divinity. In this case, Jesus did not use his divinity to just go on a tour wowing people. Just so he could hear the praise of men. Keep it coming. No, he was doing it because he wanted to change their hearts. But then you look at verse 7. After it says in verse 6, it's like, okay, not only did he not use his divinity to his own advantage, but he himself made himself nothing, taking on the nature or the form or the essence. Again, that full being, that essence of servitude. And how did he do that? By becoming human. By becoming human. I mean, think about this. The full glory and power that Peter described that we looked at last week is going to truly transform us just by beholding it. We can see throughout Scripture that when people did encounter just even pieces or just little snippets of God's glory, it changed the countenance of their face. That same glorious God became a baby. Became a baby. Think about how humiliating that would be for the Son of God. To go from that powerful position at the right hand of God to all of a sudden becoming a vulnerable human child that couldn't walk on their own, had to be carried, had to be diapered, had to be coddled. Even God made sure that he was protected by saying, go to Egypt because your life is at risk staying here. So there was vulnerability. Behold this. This shouldn't be lost upon us. To what measure God went to make something right. So verse 7, what does it speak? It says he made himself nothing, which is an important statement because it's basically saying this. Jesus willingly, willfully became human. 
which leads to a question of why. Because as one commentarian puts it, the two most humiliating experiences that Jesus took on by choosing this journey was to be born and to die. Those are the two most humiliating moments for him as the son of God who is full of glory and power was to become born and into a baby and then to die a death he did not deserve. So why? Why this story? Because we hear, I mean, we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, verse 2, talks about him being God incarnate. God being put in human skin. And this is for mankind. And that's where the angels are saying in Luke 2, listen, this is for your good. This will bring peace on earth. But why? Let's gaze into it a little bit more. Let's behold this a little bit more to understand. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to go to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, and again, this is, this is going to, we're taking this on, we're learning, because we need to lay a good foundation to really appreciate the season we're in where we're celebrating the coming of the Christ child. We are literally in the next 10 minutes going to accomplish reading this entire chapter and getting incredible substance out of it. You ready? You ready to join me here? All right, here we go. First 10 verses. Hebrews chapter 9, it says this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. So this is all talking about what was prior to Jesus coming. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind that room was a second curtain. And it was called... And that room was called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff and that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So that's why we're going to do this a little bit more quickly. But here we go. Continuing on. Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the most holy place, once a year. And never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way to the most holy place, or in other words, the way to being in the full presence of God, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So in other words, it was only able to do that which was external, on the outside, but could not resolve the inner struggle. So verse 10, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying till the time of the new order. Okay, so... Again, we're laying a foundation as to why 
Did God need to send his son Jesus specifically to be the one to be born as a child, to live then as a human being, and to then die the way he died? Okay, so we're, we're laying the foundation. And the first thing we need to learn is this. In these first 10 verses, it's saying that temple, that tabernacle that had existed for centuries, coming up to this point of Jesus' death, was, at its best, a copy of that which is to come. It is merely a foreshadowing. It's, it's a teaching. By, by us learning about and practicing these sacrifices where it talks about they did ministry in the outer room, but only once a year a high priest would go in and do a sacrifice, but using blood, that's all copies. It's a teaching. It's a preparation for mankind because the real deal is yet to come. So continuing on, verse 11 says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of the creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the person who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was put, not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, don't miss this, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Whew. So the writer of Hebrews is taking on, it's like helping, because again, the whole point of the book of Hebrews was to help those who were Hebrew, who had learned all the things that they had practiced as Hebrew children growing up, knowing what the priests were doing on their behalf. All of that was a shadow, a copy, a preparation for that which is to come. And so now he's saying the reason why blood is involved is because God established a will that was only going to go into effect once blood had been spilt. Now, many of us here have already established a will. That will is not 
in effect right now because you're still here. You're alive. But if you die, that will goes into effect and it becomes active. In the same way, in this text, what he's teaching is that until Jesus came, which the will had been established, God's will was he wants mankind to be redeemed and atoned for. But that can only happen if he himself has died. Do you catch this? He established the will. The will does not go into effect until his passing. Now how does that accomplish when you have an infinite, eternal God? God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be that one by his blood, which is now human blood, perfect human blood. That's why the virgin birth is such an important part of our teaching. He comes, he lives, and accomplishes that which no other human being can do. That by his blood, sin is atoned for. Because blood, as it says in verse 22, is the only way for sin to be covered. But historically, that coverage of blood was only an external coverage. Goats, calves, other animals that were used as part, lambs, that were part of the sacrifice, only covered the external aspects of the guilty ones. Our consciences were still guilty. Our hearts were still guilty. But until a perfect sacrifice of someone human happens, the will doesn't get fulfilled. The promises of God are unfulfilled. So blood is the only way for this to be atoned for, and therefore it had to be by a particular lamb of God, the Son of God. So let's keep going. Verse 23. And this is where we'll conclude. It says, it was necessary then, essential, that for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter sanctuary made with human hands that, that was only a copy of the true one. No, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest would go into the holy place every year with blood that was not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people were destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Basically saying this. Where did God say that he was promising something better? Genesis 3.15. Multiple texts throughout the old that God is going to do a new work. That it's going to cause people to be able to live with him for eternity. And that was the hope of mankind. But the thing was, it could not happen until the sacrifice. So what did we do? We did things that would prepare us for that moment. That would say, okay, it's going to happen. These are copies. So we're going to practice the copies so that we know. And then once he came... It was fulfilled. 
And it was only Jesus, Jesus only, that was capable of being that sacrifice. Nobody else could have done what he did. And it's only by his sacrifice that we get to fulfill and see fulfilled the promises of God and experience his eternal glory forever. I love verse 28, especially after coming off the series we just had. Because look what it says. It says, so Christ came the first time. Why? Because we were sinners. And he knew that in order for us to experience God for eternity, we, he, there had to be a blood coverage that had to be done by him. So he came the first time for that. But he comes a second time. And it says he'll come a second time. But this time it's to fulfill the will that was established from the beginning that he's going to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He was heaven itself. And only by heaven could such a sacrifice happen. The annual sacrifice no longer needed. Another sacrifice of Jesus not needed either. What he did was sufficient once and for all. He was God incarnate. And now he sits alive at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf because he knows that all things have been fulfilled. Now it's a matter of people coming to faith in that work. These things would be lost upon us during the Christmas season. We would be easily distracted by all the lights and, and the traditions of the season if we don't take the opportunity to behold the actual beauty of the Christ child. I trust that as we've gone through Hebrews 9, which is a teaching to help Hebrews understand why God had to come and why God had to come and die, has penetrated your heart this morning. Because by that work, you and I have hope for when the day he comes and he comes back, salvation comes. Let's pray. So God, I thank you. I thank you for your love that put all this into order and all this into action. And Jesus, thank you for submitting to the Father in this plan. For you too loved us and you loved the Father and you showed what divinity looks like in pure form. That power isn't just for the sake of getting a divine kick but the glory and the power of God is out of a pureness of love that would invoke such extreme measures to save us. We behold that now. May it stick to our hearts and cause this, these days of this season to be more alive than ever. Celebrating Jesus. Pray this in that special name. Amen. Would you stand, please? I want to invite you, before we sing this song, just take a moment, five or ten seconds, to, to close your eyes, to inhale, to exhale, to be still, and behold him in silence for a moment.
before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child Became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the roaring lion. Oh, be still and behold him.
first words that we sang this morning. Where in the darkness we were waiting without hope and without light. Let's let the last words that we sing today be holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty, worthy, worthy, worthy to receive all praise. Let's sing holy. If you walked in this room today not having a personal relationship with Jesus and this being a new story to you or perhaps a story you had rejected long ago, my encouragement to you is this. The creator God has paid an incredible price because of his love for you by sending his one and only son Jesus to become a baby. The ultimate grew to being a man who then died on a cross for you. He did this because he knew that by your sins, you were going to be eternally separated from him. And then unless those sins are covered, you have no hope. He provides that hope. So if you would just simply acknowledge you're a sinner before him and acknowledge that you needed him and that you believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world and that you confess with your mouth that he is Lord of your life that he becomes the leader of your life he promises that he will save you his will goes into action because he's already fulfilled it we would love to pray with you if that's a journey you would like to take and you can even do that even in the presence of your own heart but I would encourage you to tell someone Maybe somebody who brought you or we have people they will be in the encounter room. They'll be glad to pray with you and talk with you. I'll be up front as well. But if you are, came in this room today that you are a child of God and you've known this story, don't just walk by the Christmas season and just say, oh, look at all the colors. Like I had to learn with orchids, you need to stand, you need to gaze, you need to interpret the more greater detail to appreciate the glory and the wonder of it. So too, during this season, let's behold the glory of what Jesus had done. The fact that we're talking about God came and allowed himself to be born like us and then ultimately die was double humiliation, but he did it because he loves us. Let it change and transform our hearts. May it captivate us differently this season. Go in peace, knowing that goodwill has been given to man by God himself. Amen? Amen. You are dismissed. Have a blessed week.